Welcome to the Energy Fellows podcast, where each episode is designed to share expertise and experiences from U.S. and global energy fellows. They provide direction and possible solutions for ultimate journey results. Here's your host, Mark Stansberry. Enabling best-in-class customer experience and operational excellence in a hyper-connected oil and gas world, TCS prioritizes problem-solving and leverages customer insights to drive real business results. To find out more, go to TCS.com. That's TCS.com. Welcome to another episode of the Energy Fellows Podcast. I'm Mark Stansbury, your host. And today, we are honored to have a special guest Longtime friend, very important to our energy industry. Before I introduce our guest today, I hope you'll go down to the show notes and there's a survey that if you'll go to that survey and it only takes less than 10 seconds or so to answer and then you'll get some stickers sent your way for your hard hat or laptop or whatever you would like to have the stickers for. And then also we have a review of the program, rating and review. So please go to that as well. That's also in the show notes. I want to thank our sponsor. I want to thank OGGN and our family, the, the network family for what they do. And it's wonderful to have them as well to help us through this important times in our energy sector. Well, right now, I definitely want to introduce a guest that it's an honor, like I say, I saw him speak several times. In fact, had him speak at a conference the International Energy Policy Conference in Oklahoma City, Norman. It was held in Oklahoma City, Norman, in our area back about 2012. Did a great job for us as I was a chair of that event and really pleased with what he did there. And he's been on a radio show before that I hosted, but it's been quite some time. Ed Ireland, welcome to the Energy Fellows. Thank you, Mark. Glad to be here and really good to hear you again and visit with you. It's been oh. a long time. It's been too long, and so I got a feeling I need to call you sooner and get you back on the Energy Fellows, because you cover so many subjects, your writings and and your speeches and your presentations, so I definitely want to make sure that we get several of those things covered today, but it's going to be conversational from the standpoint there are those out in the, that are thinking about going to school and maybe looking at the energy industry, and there's some that are students that listen to this program, there are those that are fellows along the way up to senior fellows. And we're always looking, and I say we because now I'm 45 years plus in the energy industry, and I'm still learning. And that's what I love about the energy industry. It's just fascinating what's out there to learn and to have these opportunities. I mean, now we're in a world of AI and robotics and things that we, we weren't discussing, Ed, many years ago, but we are today. And, and we're going to cover some things. But first of all, Ed Ireland. Ed is a wonderful leader in our energy industry. Will you please start from, and take your time, uh, about the early days and where it began and your interest and up to now? Sure. Glad to, Mark. I'll give you the quick thumbnail. I Once in college, I was attracted to economics first, and that's not true of a lot of people. They take their economics course and want to go in a different direction, but it fascinated me. And so I I did get a bachelor's degree in economics and decided to go to graduate school and soon thereafter decided I would just go ahead and get a PhD in economics. Really wanted to be an economics professor. So I achieved that and I became a, my first teaching job was at Clemson University in South Carolina. I had a great department of colleagues and really enjoyed it. In fact, became the head of the department within a few years. And so I was set up to, I guess, be in academia the rest of my life. 
And I had a call from a friend who I was in graduate school with, and he had taken a job with a natural gas pipeline company in Houston. And he called and said that the company wanted to hire another economist, and he had highly recommended me for the job, which surprised me because I never thought about doing anything at that point other than teaching. So I interviewed for the job. They made me a very attractive offer. I took it, and my wife, Carolyn, and I moved back to Texas from South Carolina, and we were missing Texas anyway, so it was a good opportunity to move back. I thought I would stay with that job or something similar for a few years and then go back to teaching. So I ended up staying in the energy industry for 40 years. My goodness. So now that's 40 plus years in the energy industry because I was really fascinated with it and still am and continue to write, as you said, and I still teach at TCU in Fort Worth where I live. So still having a a lot of fun with it and enjoy the challenges and everything there is to learn. But I've in the energy industry, again, I was first with the natural gas pipeline company and then friend and I started our own energy economics consulting firm that became an actual natural gas pipeline company. And so I continued to do that for many decades. And then I ended up moving to Fort Worth, where we live now, in 2007, where I became the director of the Barnett Shale Energy Education Council. So that was right when the whole energy shale revolution was really rolling along in the Barnett Shale in North Texas and, of course, very quickly, many parts of the country. So that's where I really got into the whole shale energy revolution. And, of course, that completely transformed the energy industry in the United States. So here we are. I'm still in Fort Worth, but the Barnett Shale Energy Education Council had disbanded about Oh, five to seven years ago, just it wasn't needed anymore. The drilling activity was no longer in North Texas in the Barnett Shale, but had moved to West Texas and, and in fact, all over the United States. So, but I'm still enjoying what I'm doing and teaching and researching and writing. That's wonderful. What a wonderful history. And you're just touching on it, I know, because you've accomplished so much through the years. It's wonderful. And there are those, uh, I'm going to start off, usually I ask this closer to the end, but I think because of what you just said, it's so interesting, uh, your journey, how you got involved in economics and then moved on and got your master's and your doctorate and kept on pursuing it in natural gas companies and things like that you've been involved with and advisors and on and on. There are those that are out there especially with the, I would say, demonizing in a sense the oil and gas industry has been challenging because, you you know, when I read or I see on television that it's those oil and gas companies that are, are the problem when, in fact, the oil and gas industry supports so many great things when it comes down to our way of living. But to encourage those out there, what tips do you have for them? What reading materials, what can they go to to become interested. And for those that are already involved, how can you stay involved and be part of the energy industry for many years ahead? Well, of course, the key to, for me, is just continuous reading. I start off in the morning early, starting with the Wall Street Journal and then going from there in terms of a bunch of industry publications and news publications, because it's 
there is so much going on. In That's fact, right. I basically teach my energy courses from whatever is in the press that day or the previous day because there's so much and staying on top of it is a challenge, but it's also a lot of fun because there's so much of it. So many, it's so dynamic. So many changes are coming constantly to the energy industry and the United States and the world, of course. So it's, I'd say just constant reading is absolutely necessary because otherwise it's impossible to stay on top of it. But there are, of course, a number of great books that I have my students read. And one is, just to toss it out, Dan Juergen. And his book, The New Map, is his latest. I've used many of his other books. He's such a great writer and storyteller. Yes, he is. But The New Map really get it was written in 2021, I believe. And it's... He just nailed, even then, exactly where we are. It's, it's like he wrote it yesterday. And in terms of the geopolitics of energy and the energy transition and all of that that is shaping the energy industry. So reading is the key, and you can't read too much. Well, I'd love to be in your class. <laughs> you just, you know, you just encouraged me to want to go back to school, <laughs> take your course, because, <laughs> or courses. It's wonderful. Well, you know, with all these challenges, we had some issues in the last couple of years or so when it came to natural gas and Texas and as far as electricity issues and things like that when it came to the power grid and power generation. And that's something that when it comes to reliability and affordability and accessibility are so important because that's what I've always preached when it came to natural gas. But what issues are faced when we, you know, we have the three major power grids and all that before us, how do we meet those challenges? And, you know, with the world, there's 3.5 billion or so that don't have access like we do here and and things like that. And when it comes to access to different fuels and power and power generation and things like that, how can we incorporate what we know, but also make sure we keep what we have alive and well in our country as well? Right. Yeah. Great question. We could talk for hours about that. That's right. It's all subject of its own. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think the biggest challenge, and there are a lot of them, but an overall challenge that is really shaping everything right now in terms of energy in the United States and in the world is what I call the forced energy transition. This idea that the United States and the world is going to very quickly make a transition from our current fossil fuel based world to one that's based on wind and solar, really. The term renewables comes up, but wind and solar are the two sources that seem to get all the attention. And that's being forced from the standpoint of federal government policies in the United States and the rest of the world, Germany, Europe, all of them, who are subsidizing wind and solar and uh, taxing fossil fuels in order to try to force this transition. So that's gone from being kind of an idea or a concept to real life programs that are adversely affecting the energy industry because, of course, it's impossible to get off of fossil fuels, to move away from fossil fuels because there is no substitute. I point out to my students that I said, so the idea is that wind and solar is going to replace fossil fuels, but 
what are wind turbines made out of? Right. Well, they're made out of a lot of steel, a lot of concrete, rebar, all kinds of exotic minerals that we have to get from China. And all of that is, a lot of those components are built in China, come over on ships or loaded onto diesel-powered trucks and so on in order to construct those at the wind farm area. And so, you know, the whole notion that we can somehow get away from fossil fuels by building wind turbines and solar panels, of course, is absurd. On its face, fossil fuels are needed to build the wind turbines. So you can't get away from fossil fuels, but yet the structure has been established to put increasingly high and onerous taxes on fossil fuels. Those are coming at us very quickly now being implemented by the law that was passed six months ago called the Inflation Reduction Act, which is an absurd, an absurd title, but that's what they call it. And these taxes and subsidies are now just now starting to be implemented. They're actually already having very adverse effects on many industries and especially on our power grids. That is starting to show up. In fact, I did I published an article just a few days ago about going through all of these taxes that are being levied on fossil fuels and are really starting to show up in the inflation numbers. Because, you know, everything, as you know, Mark, everything is we have is really derived or depends on fossil fuels in some right. fashion, which means these taxes are starting to drive up the prices of everything. And that is going to have extremely deleterious effects on people's budgets, being able to afford just the basics of living. And we're seeing that. But on the other side of it, on power grids, wind and solar have really become major components of most power grids. And the result of that one result of that is that it is destabilizing power grids. And it's for the very simple reason that the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. So when you're depending on wind turbines and solar panels for electricity to be generated, sometimes those sources fail. And when they fail, something has to pick up the slack. And that something is, in most cases, natural gas-fired equipment that can generate electricity. They're mostly natural gas-fired turbines that can generate electricity. And as long as they're there to do that job, to fill in when wind and solar fails, all is good. But increasingly, those natural gas facilities are going out of business because they can't compete with the subsidies, the federal and state subsidies that wind and solar are getting. So it's not a fair market, and the market is working in terms of many of these facilities can't afford to stay in business and they're going out of business. So what's happening is we're seeing increasingly all over the United States, these power, power grids are starting to fail. They're not reliable. And there have been an increasing number of blackouts in Texas and in the Northeast and many parts of the country. 
just in recent months, so there, just last December, there was a winter storm that had pushed the Texas grid to the point of failure. It didn't. But two years prior, it was just four minutes away from failing. That was in that big winter storm in February of 2021. And an article I wrote detailed that the Texas power grid was four minutes and 37 seconds away from complete and total shutdown, which could have taken weeks or months to get restarted, if you can imagine that kind of situation. That's being all caused by this over-reliance and subsidies on wind and solar, which by their very nature do not work all the time. And it's causing problems, and it's going to continue to cause problems because more of these subsidies are now being implemented. Oh, my goodness, the challenges we have. And to think, you know, Ed, where we began our careers about similar time frame, Back, at least for me, I <laughs> first saw the fax machine. I thought, wow, what's next? And we <laughs> look what has been next, on and on and on. I mean, from iPhone to, uh, I remember as a landman, I was typing leases on top of a hood of a car at one point or a pickup. A lot of the folks don't know what a typewriter is, I don't believe. But anyway, it was quite interesting times. And then we've come along to now to AI and robotics and all these different things before us, the cybersecurity, and especially the digital transformation. I call it the digital transformation from the whiteboard to the boardroom. Are you seeing a lot of your students interested in the digital world in the sense of how they can apply, you know, as far as the digital to from the whiteboard to the boardroom concept? And what are most of your, those in the classroom, what are their pursuits as far as in the energy industry? Well, sure. I think the digital, you know, Students these days, their world is a digital world. They don't really know anything else. You know, you and I, as as you were just mentioning, we went through that transition from the non-digital world to where we are now. You know, I find myself sometimes, not only do I have myself surrounded by five computer screens here, (laughs) and then I'll also have in my hand an iPhone and an iPad and, you know, (laughs) typing on two or three different keyboards all at the same time. That's such a change for us, but not so for the students. That's how they grew up. So it's they are there in terms of that. They don't even think about it. But what I see in terms of the students, and just give you an example, the courses that I teach in energy are in the school of business. So you know, they all have a some form or related to business in some fashion. So what I'm teaching now is called entrepreneurship and energy. And so we look at kind of uh, component by component, various components of the energy industry and what the entrepreneurial opportunities are in those various sectors. And what I see is in students, very few, they're all interested in energy. They have very little interest in fossil fuel energy. Mm-hmm because they have been told from the time they could understand speech that fossil fuels are going away and should, you know, it's going to be a thing of the past. And that's what they bring into the classroom now is that mindset that fossil fuels are a thing of the past. And, you know, I say that's fine. There are a lot of opportunities and there are a lot of different components of the energy industry But 
in my class, they'll never get away from the concept that we nevertheless completely depend on fossil fuels for everything, food, shelter, and clothing, and everything in between. So, and for many of them, that is new. They haven't heard that before. Right. No. And I find that really disturbing, I guess, eye-opening to some extent, but disturbing in that they've just never really been taught that we depend on fossil fuels for everything, every minute of our lives. And as I start to point that out during each semester, it's interesting to watch their transformation in thinking that, sure, they can be interested in wind and solar or hydrogen or nuclear or whatever it is, but they can't ignore the fossil fuel side because everything depends on it. So it is, I guess, watching these young students start to maybe get a different, see the world in a different light is very satisfying to me, I think, because I feel like I'm accomplishing something. It sounds like it for sure. Definitely energy education and and setting them on course for a future that we all do depend on fossil fuels. And uh, Ed, we do I agree. You need to look at other opportunities when, the, as far as the future transitions go. But with that, we're going to be a long time with oil and gas sector for sure. ESG has been something discussed. And I re- agree with you on the digital transformation. It's much more difficult for me than some others. There's some that have not, in the C-suite level, especially on the board level, have not really embraced as much. But that's also, I would say, includes when it comes to the ESG issue. I could see that maybe that's has some positives by all means, but when it's mandated to the point that it can disrupt companies, where's that fine line? What's your message there when it comes to ESG? Yes, ESG is also, of course, something that is very much discussed, especially in business schools. I would say pretty much every course somehow touches on that. And of course, the environmental, social, and governance is what that stands for. But as I emphasize to my students, when we talk about ESG, it's a great big E and a little bitty S and G. It's mostly seems to be on the environmental side. It's talking, you know, about what kind of emissions or, you know, what lower emissions is something that's now graded for these companies in their ESG score. There are three components to that ESG, but it is the E that seems to get all of the attention. And so the focus seems to be then on companies to somehow reduce their environmental footprint in terms of carbon. That's the focus, lower carbon. So I'd say, you know, in general, you might say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. And I'd say, well, that's true until it gets to the point where the emphasis is also becomes an anti-fossil fuel emphasis, which it has. So that, again, has its impact. I think when poor students, in many cases, that's why they see that fossil fuels, the fossil fuel industry gets very low ESG scores because they're fossil fuels and emissions are a part of that. So lowering emissions Again, great idea, but not if it's pushed to the point where that actually is forcing companies 
out of business or in doing that by starving them of capital. And that kind of gets back to the first comment I made about these, let's say, natural gas-fired electric generating facilities are going out of business in many cases because of ESG, because they're being starved of capital. They can't get loans. Or if they, it's difficult to get a loan, or if they can get a loan, it's at extremely high interest rates. That's a real problem right now. And I think the ESG mark is destabilizing our economy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ed, where can those that are interested to do more of, to follow your reading or your writings, excuse me, where can they go to? It would be great to follow you. Uh, I know you've got a lot of articles, and tell us more about that because sure. I know yeah, that's something I'm writing, I've been writing. I mean, I've I guess been publishing for decades, but now all of my writing is focused or appears on Substack, and uh, Substack is an online publishing mechanism, self-publishing, and my work is at edireland.substack.com, and. So I have a number of articles out there. I try to write a few every week. And that Substack is a great place to do that. In fact, once someone gets to Substack, they can view their thousands of people that publish on Substack. And of course, not just energy. This is everything from stories and novels to you name a subject. It's out there on Substack. So that's a great, highly recommend people going to Substack and just perusing the list of information that's available. But again, once you're on Substack, you can search for my name, Ed Ireland, or edireland.substack.com. Ed Ireland, that's, again, one more time. edireland.substack.com. Perfect. Have to use that three times for me. The others pick it up the first time, maybe twice, but but yeah, I appreciate <laughs> but S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K, Substack. Perfect, perfect. Well, I definitely want them to go to that. And you've already mentioned about some of your tips along the way of what you search for and look for and things like that. There's got to be some habits, though, that you can pass along that are very important. You know, I have my, I've adopted the dashboard and the metrics and the measurements and all this. There's got to be something that are, you know, one or two things. I'm sure you've got several, but that you can pass on to those that are listening from all age groups, from those of the students all the way up to senior fellow level. Sure. Again, I think I mentioned this earlier, but you can't read too much. This rapidly changing world we're in is difficult to keep up with. Things are changing so quickly. And so I, you know, I devote the first few hours of every day. Well, I read all day long, but I, I start early reading for a few hours. And then, then I write as much as I can while I'm still fresh. And then, but continue to read and jot down notes and things to write about all day long. But reading, there's just no substitute. And I agree with you. I always can learn and to continue to learn. No matter, I like I say, over 45 years, I'm still learning every day. And really, have changed my dashboards along the way and measurements, metrics along the way as well. Ed, how do you envision the future of energy in the next, you know, say, take five, ten years from now? Maybe more of what you would like to see, more than what's been either mandated or before us. What do you see that would be the perfect solution to the energy future and in the next five, ten years plus? Well, 
I think, as, as I mentioned in my comments, I think the biggest problem we have right now is that the future of energy usage is being dictated by federal policy. And that is causing a lot of problems. In other words, it's it's a centralized kind of approach to economic progress where instead of industry making decisions and innovation and moving forward in the way that capitalist society is structured, that is, it is private decisions that determine where we go and individual decisions that all come together to move the the economy forward in a positive way. That whole structure is being upended now. And this is worldwide with decision-making coming at a national level. And that brings a lot of problems with it because if the wrong incentives are created, then the economy becomes destabilized from what it should be, from the course it would otherwise be on. And I think that's, we're there, that's happening with federal decisions being made in a way that private decisions are being stifled. And so I think that will change, but it is not going to happen quickly. We have gradually moved into this situation and hopefully we will gradually move out of it, not too gradual, but the sooner the better, to put decision-making back into the hands of private individuals and companies to make their own decisions. One of those, you mentioned ESG, that's being forced on the economy, and the results of that are not always good. So that's my hope, is that we will move in the direction of a less regulated and less or fewer federal decisions being made and allow the economy, free enterprise system to function. Wonderfully said. Very enlightening. Ed, thank you for all this time that you've spent with us so far. And I say so far because we've just touched on a few items. One that's, again, close to me as well, close to my heart, was digital transformation from the whiteboard to the boardroom. Because I found there's, like you have in your classroom, those that were are very up-to-date, by all means, when it comes to as far as the future of digital and where they are already. And then there was a disconnect with the board, some that I've been involved with on and advised on some folks with the boards. There was some disconnect as to from the whiteboard to the boardroom, incorporating certain things would be important. Some pushback sometimes when it comes to implementing certain programs like cybersecurity issues and things like that. And so I think this taking from your classroom can be very beneficial, definitely beneficial to some of these companies out in the workplace that can pass those things along. And you're leading that effort in such a great way and have for so long. You've got your your writings that people can turn to. And you're a great encouragement, Ed. You've been a great inspiration to all of us through the years as an economist and definitely having students come through your program. Appreciate you so much, Ed. Thank you, Mark. And it's great to visit with you again. I appreciate it. Well, please pass along to Carolyn. And I understand, I should mention, Ed's also a musician. You still play in the bass guitar, or is it bass guitar? Is that what you play? Well, I play guitar and bass guitar, and unfortunately, I don't 
played as much as I should. Well, I, nothing moves without energy. <laughs> so I had to add that to the program. <laughs> so you bet. You never true. know when you may see Ed playing one of these days. Yeah. <laughs> you bet. And say yes, please say hello to Nancy. I will do so. And you've been listening to Ed Ireland, energy expert, economist, great friend to us, but also to the energy industry. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of the Energy Fellows podcast. The future of energy depends on us, depends on all of us. Thank you. Join us again next week on the Energy Fellows podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. 